Well, good day, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist here in Rocky Top. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Today, we're going to begin a new series, really a mini-series, talking about the book of Jonah. And today, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1. You might want to go ahead and start looking for it in your Bible or on your phone. It can be a little bit difficult to find. It's a very, very small piece of scripture, small writing, kind of they're shuffled with all sorts of other uh, small pieces, coupled with some bigger ones, so it can be a little tricky to find as you thumb through the Bible. Uh, Thinking back when I was in elementary school, there was a children's book released that I loved. You and I and everyone here have likely heard the story of the three little pigs. Three adventurous pigs reach an age in which they leave the comforts of home, and they set out on their own seeking adventure and independence. You probably know the story. One pig builds their house out of straw. The second pig builds his house from sticks. And the third pig builds the house out of solid, fortified brick. The first two pigs are careless and inefficient, believing they can just relax after rapidly building their homes, whereas the final pig takes a much longer time and is much more meticulous, but delights in a solid house and a job well done. Before too long, however, a vicious wolf, known as the Big Bad Wolf, eyes the pigs from a hilltop and stalks them, eventually blowing the houses of the pigs with straw and sticks to the ground and gobbling them up like peanuts. But the final pig, the one with the house made of brick, resists the attack of the Big Bad Wolf and eventually bests him when the wolf tries to climb down through the brick chimney. That's the classic story, obviously, with the moral of don't rush through everything, work hard, hard work pays off. But the book that I loved when I was in elementary school was not The Three Little Pigs, but it was called The True Story of The Three Little Pigs. And this story was told from the perspective of the wolf. The wolf claims in his story that he's been misunderstood. This whole story started when he was making a birthday cake for his dear old granny, and he ran out of sugar. He just needed to borrow a cup of sugar from his neighbor, who just so happened to be a pig down the road who had built his house out of straw. And the wolf also was suffering from a cold. So he goes to the straw house, and he knocks on the door with no answer, and then he feels a terrific and terrible sneeze coming on. And before you know it, he lets out this monstrous sneeze and the house falls to the ground with a dead pig in the middle. The wolf said it would be a shame to let a perfectly good ham dinner to go to waste, so he gobbles up the pig. Predictably, this pattern happens again with the stick house and then the brick house where the wolf is finally apprehended and is willed off to prison. But the wolf maintains all the while Everybody knows the story of the three little pigs, or at least they think they do. And when we look at the book of Jonah, I would like to suggest to you that most people approach this story the way the wolf thinks other people approach the story of the three little pigs. We may think we know the story, but we may have very little idea what Jonah is actually about. And so for the next few weeks, there are four chapters in the book of Jonah, we're going to study this portion of God's precious word and visit this story with fresh eyes 
and I hope that there will be some surprises. Certainly, already for me, there have been. Jonah chapter 1, I'm going to read the verse three, first three verses as we move through this first chapter. Jonah 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So first, before we really dive into this, let's examine a little bit of the context and background for our look at Jonah. Jonah, as I said, can be tough to find in your Bibles. Jonah is considered a minor prophet in the sense that the record of Jonah's prophetic ministry is much more brief than the giant prophets of, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. There are four chapters in Jonah, and if you look at all the text, take all of it together and put it on a regular piece of paper, you would have just one and a half pages of Scripture. Indeed, Jonah is a very short story, but it is one of the most sophisticated and intricate stories in the entire Bible. Each verse, each sentence truly has something to tell us, some interesting revelation that through very clever literary devices, the author is telling us under the inspiration of God. Now, if I asked for a show of hands of who has heard the story of Jonah, now I'm not actually doing that, but if I did, if you're, and I said, are you familiar with it, stick up your hand, no doubt many hands would go up. Maybe all of the hands would go up. And then if I asked you furthermore to call out or to jot down some words that you think of, when you think of Jonah, we could probably guess some of the things that we would likely hear. Talking about Jonah's personality, we might hear the words stubborn. We might hear statements like Jonah ran from God. We would hear place names if you're familiar with some of the geography of the story, like Nineveh, perhaps Joppa or Tarshish. And of course, we would mention Jonah. And naturally, we would hear probably what most people zero in on with this story, the story of the whale or the big fish that swallows Jonah. In fact, it's this, the story of the big fish, the sea creature, or this whale, that for many people is often the main thing that dominates people's thoughts when they recall the story of Jonah. You know, and I can understand why. It's a very unusual story. We often think of Jonah not as a story of a prophet's journey and mission, but the story of Jonah and the whale. And it's become very much a children's story, and as a result, it sometimes feeds into the stigma that the Bible is nothing more than a collection of simplistic children's tales. But here's the thing, while certainly the fish is an incredible piece of the story, that's not the main takeaway from the book of Jonah. In fact, it in some ways is a very secondary thing in the book of Jonah, while important. And Jonah is not the hero of the story. If anything, he's far from it. He's actually this anti-hero. He's presented as a cold, indifferent person to the spiritual plot of so many people. 
And so before we dive into this verse-by-verse exposition on the scripture, I'm going to go ahead and give away some of the main thrusts of the book of Jonah. This is kind of a spoiler alert of what we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, but it's also going to serve as a preview of what we're going to be looking at over time. And it is this, God is sovereign over all the earth. He is in control of all events on earth and throughout the universe, a theme that emerges in Jonah. Another theme, God, in his love, is determined to get his message of redemption to all the nations, to all the peoples. Thirdly, people need to repent from sin in general and acknowledge our fallen nature and separation from God. But, in particular, we must also recognize our self-centeredness and hypocrisy. And then finally, a prevailing theme throughout this short book of Jonah, God forgives those who repent. God's compassion is boundless. His grace has no limits. And this grace is extended not just to the select few, like Jonah and the Israelites, but it is available to all, even pagan and heathen people, as is revealed in this short book. But Jonah didn't believe this. He thought that God's redemption, God's grace, God's salvation, God's promises were only extended to him and his people, the Hebrew people. So once again, now Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This opening salvo here, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God speaks here to Jonah in his own unique and personal way. And I actually want to mention something here. I think that this can be a source of trepidation for some people. Some of us will hear people, I know I have and you certainly have as well. Some people will hear folks make comments about how God spoke to them or felt like God was telling them something. And I want to be careful here that I want to say that we have to be very cautious when we hear these sorts of statements or say these sorts of statements, or if I may, even we must be cautious with other people who make comments such as this. Jonah, for all of his flaws, had been called as a prophet of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, while we don't know how much scripture Jonah had access to at this time, we do know that he knew the God of all the earth, and he knew his word. And because Jonah knew God's word, he knew the voice of God. And as we said here in the year 2023, we have the full and complete revelation of God through the Bible. And perhaps we don't realize how much of a miracle that truly is. I know I certainly don't. But I am convinced, and I hope you are too, or eventually that you will come to the conviction that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, that it is true without any mixture of error. And yes, God used the unique backgrounds and experiences and styles of its writers to compose the contents of the Bible, but it is still the divinely inspired Word of the living God. 
And certainly, God will never ask us to do anything that is contrary to what he reveals to us in the Bible. And the more we know his word, the more we understand who God is, the more we understand his character, how he moves and how he acts. And as a glorious consequence, we will recognize his call and guidance in our own lives. You know, it's funny, sometimes... Um, I'll be driving or something, and if I'm with a friend and not with Charity, I might pass my phone to them and say, will you please text Charity, and then I'll sort of dictate the message that I want them to communicate to my wife. And so then they'll take it and they'll type it in their own way. And many times Charity has come back to me and said, you're not the one that typed that. That doesn't sound like you. And I think that that goes to illustrate my point that when you become so close to a person, you know how they communicate, you know how they speak. Therefore, if you hear something that doesn't sound like them, that's contrary to who they are, then you know how to discern between their voice and a different voice. And that's why it is so important to spend time with God in His Word. Read the Word of God and treasure its content. And so here in Jonah 1, God tells Jonah to do two things. First, to go, to go to Nineveh, and secondly, to cry out against it. Jonah was to go and to rebuke them, to call out their sin and call them to repentance, perhaps not a job that anyone would want. The city of Nineveh was the capital of the great Assyrian Empire, and Nineveh was a very large and prominent city. It was not in Israel or close to Israel at all. God was calling Jonah to leave his countrymen, his kinfolk, and go to this pagan Gentile city and call them to repentance. And ancient historians have documented that Nineveh was the largest city in the world at that time, this capital city of a dominating empire, certainly a very intimidating presence for Jonah to go to. And this wickedness we read had come up before God. God was asking Jonah to go because God saw their wickedness. And this continued theme in Jonah is that nothing is hidden from God. Nothing, including man's sin and wickedness. God sees it, and there comes a point where he demands justice, and God here is going to give this specific warning of judgment that will come from God. But when Jonah hears this, he arises to flee. He was indeed a reluctant prophet. He didn't want to do what God told him to do. Now, there were likely some very good reasons from Jonah's perspective for not doing this. One, it was a difficult job to go for reasons that we've already described. And it was a difficult job because of some of the darkness that the Ninevites had here. There was violence, robbery, promiscuity, ruthlessness, witchcraft, and other sinful actions. We know this also from a biblical source in Nahum, where he describes some of the debauchery that was present with the Ninevites. Jonah had every reason to expect that at the very best, he would be mocked and he would be criticized and he would be rejected, but he might even be attacked and killed for what the Lord had asked him to do. But, and this is a big but, here's the big rub, it was also because Jonah didn't want those in Nineveh to escape God's judgment. That is indeed why he did not want to go. 
These people were wicked, that is true. They had mistreated the Israelites, also true. In fact, they wanted the Israelites taken captive and destroyed. And so in Jonah's eyes, these people were irredeemable. They deserved to be destroyed. Jonah didn't want God's grace to extend to the Ninevites. So Jonah heads to Tarshish. Now, in the ancient world, the city of Tarshish was far, far away. In fact, it was thought to be towards the end of the earth. And it's always kind of associated with seafaring ships in the Bible because it was so far away. Jonah wanted to go as far away as he could possibly go to escape God's presence, at least he thought. Nineveh was east of Israel. Tarshish was about as far as you could go west on the coast of what is today the country of Spain. And so in heading for Tarshish, Jonah intended to go as far away from Nineveh and the calling of God as he possibly could go. And this is very interesting because it's actually an intentional literary device that the author of Jonah uses multiple times, and it's called a merism. So, for instance, we talk like this all the time. Sometimes we'll say something like, I looked high and low for such and such, or we looked as far as the east is from the west, kind of using these opposites to dictate a completeness in what we're doing. So, in here, the author's saying to go from Nineveh to Tarshish was the farthest distance one could go. Jonah was running away as far as he could from the place that God actually had called him to go. He was acting on impulse. It was a brave impulse, but it was wrong. Indeed, Jonah was very brave in embarking on such a long journey, but he was also very wrong. But he pays the fare, and he paves his own path, but he would not get to where he desired to go. And another literary contrast in a timeless biblical principle emerges here. When we run away from the Lord, we never get to where we're going, and we're always going to have to pay our own way. But when we go the Lord's way, we'll not only get to where we're going, but He will provide the fare. He will pay the way. And so we read here that Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. Quite possibly my favorite psalm, there's 150 of them, and quite possibly my favorite one comes to us from the heart of King David, Psalm 139, in which he writes, among other things, Where can I go to flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah was about to learn, as David had learned in a sweet and comforting way, Jonah was about to learn in a stern way that he could not escape the presence of God. So Jonah boards this boat with the pagans, these heathen people who had no knowledge of the one true God, and sadly, Jonah immediately fit right in. You couldn't tell Jonah knew the God of all the earth, You couldn't tell Jonah served a God of love, grace, and compassion. Jonah fit right in with the vilest of men and gave no testimony to the truth. Jonah 1, 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners or sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. 
and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Here we read, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now remember, a prevailing theme in the book of Jonah is God's sovereign control. It was the Lord who stirred up the storm. Indeed, we may often think of God calming the waters through the beautiful story that we have of Jesus in the New Testament, and certainly God can and often does do that. But God may also stir up a storm in our life to get our attention. The other sailors on this ship had their own way of trying to fix this problem. They cried out to their gods, lowercase g, when mankind is in trouble, we often will do the best, our best, to fix the problem. In this case, cargo was thrown overboard, but that was not enough. They called out to his God, but not the one true God of the Bible. There's a classic saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. And while this may be a general statement, many people assume that they can put off doing business with God until they choose this better time to do it of their own choosing. But now this event on the ship is telling, sad, and tragic. The sailors may have been pagan, but they were still religious. Yet their gods were nothing and could do nothing. But there was one man on board who had a relationship with the one true God, Jonah, who knew the word of the Lord, who worshipped the God of Israel. And yet, what was he doing? He was asleep. Charles Spurgeon, who I'm actually going to mention several times before the close of this message, is known as the Prince of Preachers, and he makes this astute statement. He said, Jonah was asleep amid all the confusion and noise. And, O Christian man, for you to be indifferent to all that is going on in such a world as this, for you to be negligent of God's work in such a time as this is just as strange. The devil alone is making noise enough to wake all the Jonas." if they only want to awake. All around us there is tumult, tumult and storm, yet some professing Christians are able, like Jonah, to go to sleep in the sides of the ship. The nature of Jonah's sleep is a cautionary tale. Jonah slept in a place where he hoped no one would see or disturb him. Jonah slept in a place where he could not help with the work that needed to be done. Jonah slept while there was an ineffective religious meeting up on the deck. Jonah slept and had no ideas of the problems around him. Jonah slept when he was in himself in great danger. Jonah slept while the heathen needed him. And just as God has placed Jonah among the lost to be a witness, we, my friends, as followers of Christ, stand in the gap and have been commissioned by God to share the truth, to share God's word, to share the gospel, and show and lead people to the only right way before the God of all the earth. And once more, Spurgeon gives us a much-needed gut punch here. He says, what do you mean by a man being really awake? He says, I mean two or three things. First, his having a thorough consciousness of the reality of spiritual things. When I speak of a wakeful man, I mean one who does not take the soul to be a fancy, nor heaven to be fiction, nor hell to be a tale, 
but who acts among the sons of man as though these were the only substances and all other things the shadows. I want men of stern resolution, for no Christian is awake unless he steadfastly determines to serve his God, come fair or come foul. They find Jonah sleeping, and they say, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps they thought Jonah's God could do something in this crisis. And once again, the sophistication of this great book shines through here again. It was ironic to Jonah that the sellers demanded that he call on his God because his only reason for being on that ship was to escape his God. Let's finish up by reading this final and more lengthy section here. Jonah 1, I'm going to begin in verse 8. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Was What is your occupation? They're talking to Jonah. And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the man knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then, the, <clears throat> then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Here the sailors discovered that Jonah was the source of the trouble. And they said, what did you do? Where are you from? He said he's a prophet. He tells them who he is, where he's from. The, he serves the God of Israel. Even an unbeliever who knows some truth about God can sometimes rightly call a Christian to account who's resisting God. Why have you done this? It was the most logical question in the world at the time, even for a pagan to ask a believer. So Jonah gives a solution, throw me into the sea. And I admit, it's somewhat difficult to find the motivation for Jonah here, but based on his continued attitude throughout the rest of the story, he still seems littered with pride and stubbornness. While there may be some compassion for the sailor's hill, while there may have been some recognition of his own sin, it also seems that Jonah was so determined to not surrender to God that he was willing to be given up to destruction in the sea if it meant not following God. But nevertheless, the men rode hard trying to return to land. They didn't want to throw Jonah into the sea, once again, the pagans were showing more compassion for people than this supposed man of God was. But when all hope seemed lost, they took precautions and they threw Jonah into the sea. And immediately, it seems, a calm comes over the waters. Many believe that the sailors actually come to true faith in the one true God at this moment. But the sailors do not know the fate of Jonah. And for a brief moment, we as the reader... Do not know the prophet's end. 
For the timeless takeaways here, I'm going to once more borrow from Spurgeon as he provided four brief but beautiful principles based on the actions of the sailors here. He says, One, sinners, when they are tossed upon the sea of conviction, make desperate efforts to save themselves. May we pray that sinners are convicted. Two, the fleshly efforts of awakened sinners must inevitably fail. As brilliant as our society is with all of our prowess and advancements, we can never save ourselves. Our efforts will eventually fail, and we must humble ourselves before God. Three, the soul's sorrow will continue to increase as long as it relies on our own efforts. How sad that so many people will live their entire life with a part missing in their soul when all they have to do is turn to the Lord Jesus. And then finally, the way of salvation for sinners is to be found in the sacrifice of another on their behalf. The whole story of Jonah eventually serves as a great illustration for what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. We cannot save ourselves, but Christ died in our place so that we may have salvation. By the blood of Christ, we are washed clean. So chapter 1 closes with some contrast. The sailors under the conviction and the grace of God on the deck of the ship find peace after the raging storm while Jonah floats down into the dark waters farther away from God. The word down and going down is used several times as a euphemism for death in the book of Jonah, with each use taking Jonah farther and farther away from God. But just when we think it is over for Jonah, God appoints a great fish that swallows him, and Jonah remains there for three days and three nights. And that's where we'll conclude our study for today, a cliffhanger, if you will, as we explore the fantastically true story of the prophet Jonah. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for those who are joining us together and studying your word this morning. And God, help us to have soft hearts, that you give us Jonah as a cautionary tale here, God, as one that didn't want others to receive your grace. But God, help our hearts to be full of the grace of God, to love people as you love them, and desire to see people come to faith in you, God, to put down our pride and our stubbornness and to open our hearts and our minds and our hands to you. God, thank you for your love, your grace, and your salvation that you have extended to us and for choosing us, for loving us, and using us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.